Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for your grace and mercy on our lives, Lord, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for our sins, even though we didn't deserve it, Lord. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, humbly. Lord, seeking your wisdom, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would bless our time and your word, that you would reveal through your Holy Spirit the message that you have for us this morning, Father. We pray that you would be glorified by this service, Lord. Let's pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> well, we're finally here. I've been eagerly awaiting the opportunity to cover the second half of Romans 3 here for quite some time. <laughs> Everything we've covered so far in Romans has been leading up to this point. This is the shift in the text here from correction, admonishments, and rebuke to the hope and salvation that we have. Jesus Christ. Paul has carefully taken his time to establish the sinful state that we are all in and our utter hopelessness apart from Christ. The Holy Spirit, no doubt, has used these texts to convict us where necessary and lead us to a point of repentance, to the place that we are ready to hear the glorious truth of the righteousness of Christ and his atoning sacrifice for us. So this morning we'll be continuing where we left off in chapter 3, verse 19. If you recall from the first half of chapter 3, Paul was addressing the Jewish people and where they stand in God's plan for redemption. He first argues that they sit in a position of advantage having been entrusted with the word of God for generations. Having been blessed with the word of God and having regular access to it, was of great benefit to them, but also demands more responsibility. It doesn't place them in a place of superiority in regards to salvation, rather gives them a great benefit having the knowledge and familiarity with the word of God. Now the same holds true to us today, as we have the word of God at our fingertips, and therefore must take on more responsibility as well. He then refutes the idea of injustice on God's part for judging rightly according to God's standards and not the standards of man. In verse 9, Paul continues by declaring that although the Jews have a great benefit in knowing the word of God, all men, Jew and Gentile, are under sin and guilty before a holy God. The natural state of man is full of sin, wickedness, bitterness, ruin and wretchedness. Apart from Christ, no one is righteous. So now in verse 19, Paul continues to demonstrate that every man is subject to the law and therefore subject to God's judgment. We learn that no one will be justified by our works, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the point in Paul's address to the church in Rome that he brings them the gospel of Jesus Christ where he points them to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In the previous chapters, Paul has established the sinful state that all men are in 
and breaks down previous false notions that some have had about redemption and justification. He takes his time to slowly cover all the bases and to establish without a doubt that we are all guilty before a holy God, that we are all deserving of God's judgment, and there is nothing that we as mere men can do to save ourselves from this judgment. So here in the next few verses, we will see Paul declare that although men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and the righteous Son of God, Christ, the one and only way that our sins will be forgiven. Justification is by faith in Christ alone, so that no man may boast, whether Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, works or no works. It is by God's grace, through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, that we are justified. So with that introduction, would you please stand with me, if you are able, out of the reverence for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. I'm sorry, 31. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They They are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now in the first section of this morning's text, in verses 19 and 20, Paul is really driving home his main point from the previous two chapters. The intent and goal of everything that we have covered so far in Romans is coming to a head here. And the point is this. We are all guilty. We are all sinners. No one can uphold the law 100%. No human being is righteous in God's sight. Not one. 
Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to, subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. The purpose of the law is to declare to everyone who hears it that they are guilty and subject to God's judgment. Those that would stand before a holy God and try to justify themselves by their works or by their ability to keep the law will stand with their mouths shut. They are without excuse. They have failed. The purpose of the law was never to be a list of do's and don'ts that one must accomplish to gain eternal life. Its purpose is to show us that we are incapable of living up to God's standards. Its purpose is to show us our need for Christ. Verse 20 says, No one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Now let me give you an analogy. The law is kind of like a, a flashlight in a dark movie theater of your heart. If you imagine, if you would for a moment, you're sitting in a movie theater, the lights are dimmed, and everyone's contently watching the screen, the volume is way up, what is in front of you on the screen demands your attention. The seats are cushy and comfortable, and the air conditioning is cranked way up so you're comfortable. It seems great, right? But what happens when you turn on a flashlight and you start looking around? There's popcorn everywhere. There's gum on your seat. You're sitting in a pile of melted chocolate. Your feet are resting in a pool of dried, sticky soda. The light has exposed the filth that you've been comfortably sitting in this whole time. Well, the law does the same thing, revealing the sin in our hearts. Apart from the law, you may look at your life and the condition of your heart and tell yourself, well, I'm not that bad. I've done a pretty good job. I'm generally a good person. I'm caring, I'm helpful. People enjoy being around me. I even volunteer at my local food shelter. But when the law exposes our sin, we are without excuse. We can try to hide our sin. We can try to keep the lights down low and pretend it's not there. But it is there. And it will be exposed. And we will be held responsible for it. Our mouths will be shut. No one will be justified in God's sight by his works. And it is at this point when we know and accept the fact that we have sinned against a holy God, when we realize and understand that we are without excuse, and when we accept the fact that we are incapable of keeping God's law, that we are ready for the gospel, for the good news, for the truth that is revealed to us this morning in Romans chapter 3. The entirety of everything that we have covered so far in Romans has been leading to this point. Verse 21 says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, 
The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Now this is probably my most beloved verse of the Bible right here this morning. It has to be one of the most profound few sentences put together on paper that we have available to us. Everything that you really need to know to understand salvation in the gospel are right here for you in these few verses. Did you miss it? Sometimes it's easy to graze through Scripture and kind of get the essence of what you're reading, but not really realize the gravity of it. If you were to go out and walk the streets and try to street preach intending to share the gospel and only take one page of the Bible with you, I submit to you this is all that you would need. The entirety of the gospel is laid out here for us summed up in just a few sentences. Now I'll attempt to break this down into a few simple points here this morning. The first point from verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. Now keep in mind the last few verses leading up to this point were reiterating the fact that everyone is subject to the law, and incapable of keeping the law. Sinful men cannot achieve righteousness through the law. It's not possible. This was also the temptation of the Jews at the time as well. They relied heavily on their ability to keep the law as their means of justification. So what is being revealed to us here through the text and through the Holy Spirit this morning is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's not through our works or our ability to keep the law that we are justified. Rather, the law has shown us our need for a Savior, and now our Savior has arrived. It isn't a new concept either. Paul points to the law and the prophets to back up his claim. Now later in chapter 4, Paul expounds on the idea that justification by faith is nothing new in the fact that the doctrine of the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. I'll turn to chapter 4 briefly in a moment. Um, We'll dig a little deeper into this in our next sermon, but I think it's worthwhile to turn there this morning briefly just to get the full scope of what we're talking about here. So in chapter 4, verse 1, Abraham is referenced as an example of one who was justified by faith and not works. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. 
Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. So we see that Abraham was not justified by his works either, but rather by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now we'll expound on this a little further when we get to chapter 4, next time we meet, Lord willing. But the point is that justification by faith is nothing new. The law and the prophets are a testimony, a witness, to his claim here this morning. What is that claim? Well, we get a clear, distinct explanation of justification by faith in verse 22. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. Salvation is not based on your ability to keep the law, but it is through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's think about that for a second. The greatest gift ever given to mankind, the best thing that could ever happen to you, doesn't cost anything. There isn't some huge checklist that you first must complete to achieve salvation, to be granted forgiveness for your sins. You don't have to be a certain race or ethnicity. You don't need any money. There's nothing you could have done in your past that disqualifies you. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. Why? Why is it for all who believe and not just some? Why is there no distinction? Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. It's a level playing field. The well-off college student who grew up in a Christian home in a good neighborhood with honest, hard-working parents has no more right to salvation than someone who has grown up in poverty or someone who grew up in a bad neighborhood full of crime with no parents around to guide them. How they get there is irrelevant. Justification is freely given by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now notice it doesn't just say here that we are justified freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It says that we are justified freely by his grace. We receive salvation through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, and through his atoning sacrifice on the cross. But it's important to emphasize that this is all by the grace of God. Without the grace of God, we would not have access to this redeeming faith. Well, the definition of grace is an unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. It's unmerited. Salvation isn't something that can be earned or deserved. 
God doesn't owe it to us. It's a divine assistance. It's God intervening in our lives, pulling us up out of our sin, not because we deserve it, but because he chose us. The grace of God is the key here. Ephesians 2.8 says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. Praise God. It is by his grace that we are saved. And I am so grateful that it's in God's hands and not, because, and not in my own because I would screw it up. I do have faith, absolutely. I have faith in Jesus Christ and the atoning sacrifice will cover my sins. But how do I know that this faith will on the test of time? How do I know that it will withstand the trials of my life? It's by God's grace. It's out of my hands and it's in his. I know that my faith is genuine because I didn't conjure it up. It's not from me. Rather, it was me freely by the grace of God. And that's how I can have confidence that my faith will not fail, because it is not I who sustains it, but it is God Almighty who sustains it. Now, have any of you ever found yourselves in what I like to call a spiritual dry spell? You're going to church, you're reading your Bible, praying regularly, but for some reason you just feel distant from the Lord? I, I've gone through periods like that, and I'm sure I'm not alone. Despite your best efforts, there seems to be some kind of emotional wall in your life where you just aren't feeling that connection to God as strong as you have in the past. Let me give you a personal example. Shortly after our family brought home our son Titus, my wife and I went through a period like this. We had went through all the paperwork, the waiting and the anticipation of adoption, the excitement, eagerly praying to the Lord that he would provide the finances and the ability to bring him home, and the Lord did provide, praise God. By God's grace, we did bring him home. And it was exhilarating. We felt so close to the Lord. We felt like we were exactly where we were supposed to be. And there was a lot of positive emotions flowing. But that wasn't the end of the story. Adoption isn't easy. It's not like all the romantic fairy tale portrayals that you see in the movies. It's messy. He was hurt. He was in emotional trauma. He didn't know us or our language. Attachment isn't easy. It's not a quick process. And what began as an exciting spiritual high and an answer to our prayers developed into a long period of just struggling to get through the day. Trying to figure out how to deal with all the emotional trauma and baggage that comes with adoption. 
trying to show our son love and compassion and the grace that God had shown us. Trying to provide for him what he needs, but not really knowing what that is sometimes. Sleepless nights and prayer after prayer with no clear, distinct answer or direction. Reading scripture together, but just kind of trudging through it. What have we done wrong? If this was God's will for us, why is this so difficult? Why do we feel so distant from the Lord? What did we miss? Is there some sin in my life that I'm missing that's causing this? Or was this really God's plan for us? Or had we just wanted it for our own selfish reasons? The ultimate reality that we had to accept was that being in God's will isn't always a fun, exciting, spiritual high. You're not always going to have that feeling that you're close to God and that emotional reward that comes along with it. These these periods do come on and fade for various reasons. There isn't always something you can specifically point to in your life that is creating that wall. Sometimes there is maybe a sin or a distraction in your life, but not always. But a lot of times people will go through these periods of spiritual trials in their life, these periods of spiritual dryness, and they'll start to question their faith. When they aren't feeling that spiritual connection, when reading the word doesn't give them the excitement that it once did, or when their prayers continue unanswered, when they're at their lowest low and feeling depressed and that there is no hope, they start to question, am I really saved? Was my repentance genuine? Am I missing something? It's in these times that we need most to be reminded of God's grace. My faith and my salvation aren't dependent on how I'm feeling that day. My salvation isn't going to fail because of my inability to sustain a certain feeling or emotion. It's God's grace that has given me faith and salvation, and it's by God's grace that I'll maintain it. There's nothing I did to earn or deserve my salvation. It's all in God's hands. And this is a freeing reality. So when I'm going through a a dry spell or feeling discouraged, or if my greatest attempts to do what I think is God's will for my life are failing, I just remember it is all by God's grace. I can't undo this. I can't screw it up. For you are saved by grace through faith. Praise God. Amen? Amen. Paul continues in verse 25. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this term, an atoning sacrifice would be the necessary response to our sin. Atonement can be defined as reparation for an offense or injury or satisfaction. Now, our sin 
is an offense against a holy God that demands reparation or satisfaction. There is a price to be paid for sin, and it will be paid, either through an eternity in hell or through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God, demonstrating his righteousness, sacrificed his own son to be the atoning sacrifice in our stead. He paid the debt that we owed. And this can only be received through faith in Jesus Christ. Can't be earned. Can't be bought. Can't volunteer enough at your local food shelter to achieve it. It's received by grace through faith. Verse 26, he says, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So through this atoning sacrifice, not only is God proven righteous, but us believers who have faith in Jesus Christ and have received the Holy Spirit are declared righteous as well. The weight of that sin, the debt, that reparation that was owed because of our sins is paid in full. The punishment that we deserved was atoned for through Jesus Christ and his blood. Once sinful men will be able to enter heaven declared righteous by the Holy Son of God. Let's think about that for a moment. You are righteous. If you have repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ and have received the Holy Spirit, God Almighty in heaven has declared you righteous through his Son, Jesus Christ. It's a humbling feeling, is it not? Now there's a temptation here to take this all for granted as well. God has given us his grace freely. But there's no such thing as cheap grace. We hear words like propitiation and atonement, and we sometimes lose the reality of it. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin to take the just punishment that we deserved. The full wrath of God the wrath that we deserved poured out on his son that we might be declared righteous even though we don't deserve it. So just in case men would take the opportunity to puff themselves up, we're reminded here 
in verse 27 to stay humble. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The righteousness of God that is imparted onto us when we repent and place our faith in Christ is not our doing, but it's God's. And God has designed it this way so that no man may boast. When our righteousness comes from faith, and not the law, it removes the opportunity for men to boast in their accomplishments or their ability to uphold the law. Verse 28 said, We conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Your salvation does not hinge on your ability to keep the law. You are not justified because of what you do and do not do, all of us have failed and are incapable of living up to the standards of a holy God. Your salvation does not hinge on how you feel or what your emotions are. Our emotions are unstable and unreliable. And this is where God's grace steps in. Where we fail, God prevails. And none of this works without God's grace. Because none of us deserve repentance through faith, but yet it's freely given to us by God's grace. And here in the close of chapter 3, Paul anticipates the thoughts of a fallen world, the temptation that we would all have if left to our own devices. If our salvation does not depend on our ability to obey God's law, then what need have we for the law? Does faith nullify the law? Does it really matter if I continue to sin if it is solely by faith that I am saved anyways? It's on the contrary. We uphold the law. If you can truly grasp the reality of grace and faith, then your desire to sin should fade away. Now obviously we live in a fallen world, so there will still be struggles, but if you have repented, and if you have the Holy Spirit, God will transform you into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. And this doesn't happen overnight, but slowly as we seek him, we will be transformed. And the temptation to use grace as an opportunity to sin, will fade away. Paul says not only do we obey the law, but we uphold the law. That means that we confirm the law or we support it. That means that we are walking testimonies of God's law being upheld. So us as believers in a fallen world 
should be a shining example of God's law world around us. The truth of God and his righteousness should be evident to those around us through our lives. It should be something different about us. We shouldn't look like the rest of the world. And here lies the application of this morning's message. You've been given a gift, freely, no strings attached. You and I did nothing to deserve this gift, but God in his grace and mercy has given it to us anyway. Although we were deserving of death, God has granted us life and forgiveness. There's nothing we did to deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. Sin and the grave no longer hold a grip on us, but we are walking, talking testimonies to the glory and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's act like it, church. Let's prove it. Let us not nullify the law, but uphold it. We're given just a short window of time here on earth. You wake up tomorrow and it's over. Don't let the cares and distractions of everyday life get in the way. Don't get so bogged down with work and possessions and responsibilities that you forget what your real responsibility is. To share the gospel. To grow the kingdom. To disciple your children. To be about the work of our Father. This is our call. This is our mission. This is why God has granted his grace on us and blessed us beyond what we deserve. Now, if you're here this morning and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, if you do not yet know this grace, don't waste any time. This gift is free. No strings attached. There's nothing in your past that can disqualify you. God in his great mercy has shown us his grace and he will grant you faith and repentance. And you too can be a walking, talking testimony to the mighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Let us worship him this morning. Let's worship him with our lives for his great grace and mercy on us, for his son Jesus Christ, and for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. I'd like to close this morning's message by reading Psalm 145 to you this morning. Psalm 145. I exalt you, my God the King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day I will praise your name forever and ever. The Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness 
and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. All you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all peoples of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. The Lord helps all who fall. He rises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. The Lord is near to all who call to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all who love him, but he destroys the wicked. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning, Lord. You are gracious and mighty to us, Lord, and we don't deserve it. But Father, we are so thankful, Lord. We thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of our weakness, Lord, of our flesh. Pray that you would forgive us of our sins, Father. We pray that we would be about your business, Lord Jesus. I pray that we would take seriously the call that you have for us, Lord. That we wouldn't see your grace as something flimsy and cheap, Lord, but that we would appreciate it for what it really is, Lord. Your amazing grace that you've blessed us with, Lord. We just pray that you would continue to give us grace in our lives, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would give salvation to those who have not yet received it. Lord, and we just pray that you would be glorified through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.